0: Luke 4, we will be considering today verses 14 to 30. We are in a new section of Luke's gospel today, beginning in verse 14, chapter 4, that's going to carry us all the way through chapter 9, verse 50. In 9.51, Luke is going to say that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. Of course, there he will accomplish the salvation of mankind, bearing in his own body our sin upon the tree outside of the gate. That, of course, Jerusalem is in the southern province of Judea. Luke is going to concentrate his focus until chapter 9, verse 51, on Jesus' ministry in the northern province of Galilee, which is where Jesus was brought up. Luke chapter 4, we'll be considering again verses 14 to 30. What would you say has become the first question of history? Not first chronologically, but I mean the question that would be of first importance. What has become the first question of history. I think it has at least I know from a Christian point of view. But I believe that the first question of history has become in these last two millennia this: Who is Jesus? Who is this Jesus of Nazareth? That has become in the last two thousand years the first question of history, and that question is leaping off of the page. In this section of Luke's Gospel, who is this Jesus? It's the question that is on everybody's lips. In the passage before us today, another question comes into view that goes along with that. Who is Jesus first? And along with that, how do you answer him? Who is Jesus and how do you answer him? In verse 22 of our passage, it's going to say to us that everyone who is gathered in the synagogue there at Nazareth on this particular Sabbath day marvels at the gracious words that come from Jesus' mouth. Everyone marveled. Marveling is not enough. Marveling is not really an answer, at least... You know that uh, that game show, I don't even know if it's still going on, but it was really popular there for a while, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And the hostess would ask, I guess it was Regis, was it Regis to start? Anyway, the the host or hostess would ask, is that your final answer? Marveling is not a final answer, because it can go in one of two directions. And for the people of Nazareth, Marveling turned very quickly into attempted murder. Now, attempted murder, that's an answer to Jesus. and falls, obviously, in the realm of unbelief. Refusal, rejection, and unbelief. Marveling is not the same thing, obviously, as believing. And marveling without believing does not save anyone. But how many people still today are satisfied that they marvel at the words of Jesus. Jesus was incredible. Jesus is this great, notable figure, one of the greatest in history, they will say. He has so much to teach us. I'd like to follow his teachings. That's, that marveling is not enough. It's not the final answer. And so as we consider this question in Luke, who is Jesus, we must each also answer we must each respond, how do I answer him? Do I believe him? Do I receive him by faith? Or do I reject him? Let's read verses 14 of Luke 4 down to verse 22. And then we will pray. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, The report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I pray Today, that you would plant the word of your son into our hearts so that our first response will be marveling, will be to wonder at who Jesus is and what he accomplished. But beyond marveling, I pray, Father, that we would believe in him. Still, we would submit to him we would rise up from among the crowd that is questioning and whispering amongst themselves. I pray that we would rise and we would stand and we would say, I believe you, Jesus. I pray, Father, that you would not only give us marveling hearts, but believing hearts. Each and every one of us. I pray that there would be no one here who refuses Christ. Father, give to us your Holy Spirit, I pray, because without your Holy Spirit, we are not capable in the least of having the right response to Christ. We will not worship. We will not obey. We will not change apart from your Spirit. So give to us your Spirit. Because we long, Father, to bring you the honor, praise, the worship that you alone are worthy of. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Who is Jesus and how do you answer him? In verses 18, 19, and, and 21, we read what Jesus said. But you do realize that what Jesus said is not just what he said, right? It's not just what he said. I mean, this isn't just a record of a past speech. Christians don't believe that. It's not that this was the word of God. This is the word of God. That means, therefore, that this is not just an ancient record of past words which Jesus once spoke. But this means, because this is the Word of God, this means that Jesus, who is living and throned at the Father's right hand, this is what He speaks. It's not just what He spoke. It's what He today continues to speak. Nothing about this word, not its relevance, not its meaning, not its application, not its power, has changed. Nothing about this word has changed in the least. And so, what do you think about what Jesus said? That's not my question. I'm not asking you, what do you think about what Jesus said? But how do you answer what he says? This is key. How do you answer Christ? What he says. Let's rewind back to verses 14 and 15. After Jesus was baptized at the Jordan River and he was tempted in the wilderness, Jesus returns to Galilee, that northern province again where he had been raised up. And it says in verse 14 that he returned in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is not surprising. We should be getting used to this theme of the work of the holy spirit in the life of Jesus through Luke's narrative. He was conceived by the holy spirit, we saw that in chapter 1. He was anointed by the holy spirit at his baptism, he was led by the holy spirit into the wilderness to encounter the devil, and now so it's not surprising he is being he is returning in the power of the holy spirit to Galilee. And it says a report about him went out through all the surrounding country and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. When the Jews gathered every week on the last day of the week, the Sabbath day for corporate worship, Jesus was part of the gathering. He was with them, just like he had been attending synagogue worship on the Sabbath day throughout his entire life. But now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, it's different. It's different for Jesus. He's not merely attending. He is speaking. He is revealing. He is putting himself front and center in the gathering. And he is not making small waves. The response of the people initially is overwhelmingly positive. He is glorified praised, and he is honored by everybody that hears him. So the initial response is overwhelmingly positive. And then he returns to his hometown of Nazareth. It says, the beginning of 16, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. There was no doubt where Jesus was going to be On the Sabbath. There's a lesson in there. It's not the absolute point of this text. But there's a significant application. To our lives. Where when the the Sabbath day arrived. And the people of God gathered in the synagogue. It was Jesus custom to be there. No doubt he was going to be. With the people of God. Worshipping. How many times do you think. Not really looking for an answer here. Don't pull out your calculator or anything. How many times do you think Jesus gathered in this particular synagogue in Nazareth with these particular people? It may be that Jesus has been gone from Nazareth for a year or so, but nonetheless, most of the people who are there on this day know him. They know Jesus. This is his hometown crowd. His Friends that he had grown up with are are gathered here on this particular day. On the familiar social level, these people know Jesus very, very well. He has been a thread in the fabric of community life for 30 or so years. He had grown up in Nazareth since he was a, a toddler, basically. So they know him. But now they are beginning to hear as reports come in from the surrounding country that he is more than just a fabric, a thread in the fabric of community life. And so they have gathered to hear him. No doubt the synagogue is packed because they have heard that he is much, much more than they ever thought. It says at the end of verse 16, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place. I just—I want us to, to put ourselves here in Israelite life for a moment. In this time, in this place. Just think about this specific time all over Israel. In large communities and in small communities. The people of God are gathered on this particular Sabbath day to worship. And they're worshiping in a very organized and structured way. They have particular Old Testament readings that they're going to go through. There is going to be set prayers that are prayed. And then in every synagogue, capable men are recognized amongst the congregation and given the opportunity to explain the scriptures. In the Nazarene synagogue on this Sabbath day, the people are waiting for Jesus to stand up and to read the scriptures. And do you notice, we've already read through verse 22. Do you notice what is different, what is unique about how Luke traces the movements of Jesus in this passage? What is unique about this passage from what we've already covered in Luke's Gospel and what we're going to see throughout the narrative? What's unique is that these movements are actually mentioned. That's what's unique. Because when Jesus goes into Judea, when he goes into the wilderness and returns to Galilee and so on, all Luke says is that he goes there and returns here and comes to this place. That's how specific he gets. But now he's getting very specific. It says that he stood up to read. The scroll is handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place. After he reads, it says, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back, sat down, and the eyes of all were fixed on him. So what's unique about Jesus' movements is that they are mentioned. What's going on? What's my point? Luke is very deliberately slowing down the story. He is slowing down the narrative. He wants you to be drawn in. What are these people doing? They're leaning in. They're listening close. They're giving all of their attention to, to Jesus. And that's why Luke is slowing this down and tracing every movement of Jesus, because he wants us to lean in. He wants us to listen close to what Jesus has to say, because what he says about who he is and what he will do is extremely important for us to pay attention to and to answer. So you can imagine, everyone is still when Jesus stands up to read. This is the moment that they have been waiting for. The scroll is handed to him, and the only sound that is heard in the place is his hands handling the scroll rolling it out, smoothing out that parchment and tracing with his finger until he finds the place toward the back of Isaiah. And then he reads, let's read it again. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Again, let's let's read it again. He, it's very slowed down. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant. It was their custom to stand when reading, but the teacher sat when teaching. He gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. This wording that Luke is using about how they fix their eyes on Jesus is very unique to Luke. This wording is very rare among, for the other writers of Scripture. They don't typically use these words. Luke does, but only when he is describing extremely powerful and dramatic moments of how they fix their eyes on Christ. Other places that Luke talks this way is... Uh, For example, in Acts, when he is describing how the disciples gaze into heaven after the ascended Jesus, or when Stephen, at his martyrdom, gazes into heaven and sees God, and he sees Jesus, the Son of Man, at the right hand of God. That's the kind of language he's using here. He's capturing the drama, the power of this particular moment. Jesus has never had the attention of his hometown Like he has now. Of course, he's never sought their attention like this before. You can be pretty confident. You can just, you can feel what it felt like. You could hear a pin drop fall in the Nazarene synagogue at this moment. Everyone leaning in, eyes fixed on Christ, and Jesus speaks. Today, this scripture, has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is absolutely remarkable. Any reader in the Israelite synagogues on this Sabbath day could have read Isaiah 61, and any one of them could have said, today, this scripture has been read in your hearing. But Jesus doesn't say, this is the word of God for you to hear. Isaiah has been read today. He doesn't say, Isaiah has been read today. He says, Isaiah is fulfilled today. The report about Jesus that has come to Nazareth has not been exaggerated. He is as advertised And much more. So see how the people respond in verse 22. They speak well of him. And they marvel at the gracious words. They're whispering and they're wondering. Marveling to one another. And they say. Or I should say maybe. But they say. Is not this Joseph's son? And that sounds like they don't know him. Right? It it could sound like that. If you take a, a certain tone. Wait a second, isn't that Joseph's son? I think I recognize that guy, but that's not what they're saying. The reason that they're asking this particular question, is not this Joseph's son, is because they know him. They know him and they understand as good, worshipping Jewish people, they understand what Jesus is saying. And it is mind-boggling. Because if what Jesus says is actually true and it's obvious and clear to them that he believes it's true, then history has just divided. History has just divided and it has divided on one of Joseph's sons. If what Jesus says is true, then one of their hometown sons is the long-awaited Christ. And they cannot grasp That reality. So, what they mean by is not this Joseph's son is we know this is Joseph's son. How could this be? Okay, let's just unravel the scroll of Isaiah to ourselves and let's point our finger at the text. How could he be him? How could he be him? How could he be the long awaited one? How could he be the Christ? Now, if this was just a human story of human origin, if that's all this was, then you know what Jesus would do at this moment because being the Son of God and having the power of God? If this was just a human story of human origin, Jesus would try all that He could try to turn the, the, the Nazarene poles in His favor. I mean, he'd try all he could to persuade them. He'd use the most compelling, eloquent words. Maybe he'd levitate the synagogue over their heads and set it back gently down and say, see, I'm telling you the truth. That's how it would go if this was but a human story. Another way it would go, if if this was true story, but Jesus is lying, if he is just fabricating all of this about him being the Messiah... If he was fabricating this, then Nazareth would be a campaign stop for him. That's what it would be. And Jesus would be on some kind of promotional tour, a campaign. And to convince people of his awesomeness, the awesomeness that he is is claiming, he is going to work very hard all he can to, to work the crowd and to bring them over to his side. But Jesus isn't fabricating this, and this is not a story of human origin. This is not myth. This is not legend. So what does Jesus do? Instead of working the crowd or turning a few tricks or whatever, while they're still in the first stages of their wondering, Jesus moves them along to the next stage. And it's not welcoming. He moves them right on to criticism and outright rejection. So let's read it in verses 23 to 30. They say at the end of verse 22, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless. You will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Wait a second, Jesus. If you're on a campaign to get elected, you're not campaigning very well. This is very, not very self-promotional. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. He went away. Earlier, he said that all that the people of God have been promised and have hoped for for so long is here and is now found in me. Everything you've been promised from God is found in me. I am the Messiah. I am the yes of the promises of God. And you, I am telling you, will have nothing to do with me. But this is typical. Because no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. As Israel turned against her greatest prophets in her most godless days, so you are going to turn against me. And as Elijah and Elisha went to the lowly and the despised and the unclean, so will I. As they went to the Gentiles, that's where my mission is taking me. And so just as he promised they would do, they did. They rejected him. But they cannot stand the thought that their hometown son can make good anywhere else. So to put an end to that possibility, they want to put an end to him immediately. They want to kill him again. Again. They rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Do you remember back earlier in chapter 4 in the paragraph that was previous to this? It says that Satan brought Jesus to the pinnacle, the peak of the temple and provoked him to jump off and Jesus refused it. Now his hometown is bringing him to the the peak of their town. And they're not provoking him, urging him to, to jump off. They want to throw him off. But here God refused it. There would be other incidents like this in Jesus' life when death was at hand, when the people say, pick up stones to throw at him. Why does Jesus escape here? We don't know how he escapes, but he does. Why? Because it is not God's appointed hour for him to die. He will die in Jerusalem on the cross, bearing the sin of mankind. That hour is not yet. And so passing through their midst, it says in verse 30, He went away. Now I want to go back to verses 18 and 19. And I want to delve a little bit deeper into this passage of Isaiah chapter 61 that Jesus is reading. What would Jesus, by the Spirit's anointing, accomplish The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, he says, has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and to proclaim recovering of sight to the blind. The Spirit of God is upon Jesus, anointing him to be a preacher. He's going to preach, again, good news to the poor, freedom to the captive, and healing for the blind. Now, of course, we think instinctively... We think of those who are physically and materially suffering. Jesus freely, and he frequently ministered to these kinds of people who were despised and rejected, the people who were pushed to the margins of society and even pushed out of the community. Jesus ministered to these people. All their lives long, they've had nothing but trouble and heard nothing but trouble, nothing but judgment and condemnation. Here Jesus comes and he gives to them speaks into their lives mercy and compassion. Now, whenever I preach to um, a specific group of people, like if I say, ladies, I want you to hear something, what happens typically is that heads that have been down suddenly come up. Eyes looking down, look up and look at me. If I say youth, you know, people who have been looking down, just look up because we know, okay, this particular word is for me particularly. So when Jesus says that the Spirit is upon him to preach good news to the poor and liberty for the captive and healing for the blind, do you look up? Do you know? the bottom of your heart, that he is talking about you. He is not only describing material and physical suffering. He is talking about our spiritual condition. He is talking about being poor and captive and blind in our hearts, in our souls, and in our minds. That's what he's talking about. We are spiritually poor. We are impoverished. We are bankrupt of righteousness. We have nothing natively, naturally in ourselves that could commend us to the favor of God. Nothing. Now our instinct is to say, yeah, we've got a little bit of something. No, we have nothing. Remember that passage that Jerry read earlier in the service? Dead in our trespasses and sins. We have nothing. Good that would earn the favor of God. We are absolutely spiritually. We're poor. We're the poor that Jesus is talking about. When he says that, do you look up? Do you know that he's talking about you? We are spiritually captive to sin. We're captive to sin. The way that Paul put it in Romans 3, he said, we are under sin. We're under its power, naturally speaking. Apart from God's merciful intervention in our lives, we're captive to the tyranny and the power of sin. In Romans 8, Paul said, those who are, who are in the flesh cannot, cannot, that's a, this is a blanket universal statement, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. If we were created for the purpose of bringing glory to God. Pleasing God. And it says we in the flesh cannot please God. Does it sound like people who are in the flesh are free? Are they captive? Or are they free? Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We are, we are born captive. People want to say we We are born innocent, we are born neutral, or even we are born in righteousness and we end up choosing the confines, the captivity, the prison of sin. We're born in the paradise of righteousness. We choose, we're nurtured into the prison of sin. That's not what the scriptures say. We are born in the prison of sin, scorning the paradise of righteousness. This is important. It's not that we are sinners because we sin. We sin, rather, from the depths of our heart, from our very nature, because we are sinners. That's the state in which we're born. Do we feel? We feel a freedom, don't we? We we feel like we can choose God or the world on our own. We can choose good or evil on our own. The Bible says we can't not apart from the merciful, gracious intervention of God in our lives. We cannot. We're captive. Jesus came to proclaim liberty to the captive. And if we want to say, no, I, I'm not I'm not really a captive. I, I can do it. I can make it. I can choose. I'm free. I, I have to say, stifle that. That protest. Suppress it. Shut it up. Because... The only ones who rejoice in the good news of freedom, the only captives who, who rejoice are those who feel, who confess the chains. Do you look up when Jesus says he has come for the poor, the slave, the blind? As we continue through this narrative, this is what I'd, I'd like you to do. It's really important. I know I've been saying that a lot. This is really important throughout this. This is very important. You must see yourself in all of these people who need Jesus. Do you see yourself in the demon-possessed man of later on in chapter 4? Do you see yourself in the unclean leper of chapter 5? Do you see yourself in that sinful woman and the scorning Pharisee? of chapter seven. Do you see yourself in the mourning widow and in her dead son? Do you see yourself in the weeping, needy Jairus and his dead daughter? Do you see yourself in that reckless younger son and in the hypocritical, self-righteous older son? Do you see yourself in Judas betraying and Peter denying? In Pilate, who's quivering, and Herod, who's testing? Do you see yourself in the chief priests who are demanding and the crowd screaming? Do you see yourself in the soldiers who are executing and the thieves who are dying? When you peer into their lives through the word of God, are you looking into a mirror where you find your reflection? Do you see yourself in all of these people who desperately need Jesus Christ. Jesus says in verse 18, not only has he been sent to proclaim liberty, at the end of verse 18 he says he has been sent to set at liberty those who are oppressed. He is not only here to proclaim salvation, He said, I have come to be salvation. He doesn't just announce deliverance. He and he alone is the deliverer of mankind. Let's look at verse 19 again. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That is a rather technical term, a loaded and very weighty term that goes back to the book of Leviticus, chapter 25. The year of the Lord's favor is a reference to the year of Jubilee. You've probably heard it. Do you know much about it? We don't talk about it often. But the year of Jubilee came every 50th year. And it meant freedom for all of the land's inhabitants. Anybody who had debt was released from their debt. Uh, people who had become enslaved because of debt were redeemed. People were returning to their ancestral homes, and it was a year of rest for all of the land. They didn't work the land in that year. It was the year of the Lord's favor. came every 50th year. But down through Israelite history, Jubilee became known not only as the blessed 50th year, it became a loaded reference to the dawning of God's new age. They were waiting. All of these jubilees every 50th year were foreshadowing the ultimate jubilee. When the people of God would have release, redemption, rest, and freedom. They were waiting for this. Now Jesus says that he has been anointed by the Holy Spirit to proclaim the year of jubilee, the year of God's favor and then he rolls up the scroll hands it back to the attendant and takes the seat of the teacher all eyes are fixed on him and he says today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing and I want to remind you of something that I said at the beginning this is not just what Jesus said. This is what Jesus says. This is what he is saying. In other words, this is the year of the Lord's favor. And we're not speaking about a 365 calendar day calendar year. We're not talking about that. We're talking about a new day, a new era. The new age. We don't have it all yet. We don't have all the rest, all the liberty, all the redemption. We don't have it all. We don't have the fullness, but we have the beginning. And I can prove that to you from, if you sound a little bit doubtful, because what I'm telling you is 2015 is the year of the Lord's favor. And you know, I'm not talking like Joel Osteen. I'm not talking like a prosperity preacher. This is the year of the Lord's favor. Expect the windows of heaven to open and you're all going to receive incredible Wealth and prosperity and so on. 2015, like 2014 and 2016 will be, is the year of the Lord's favor. It's the year of Jubilee. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2. Paul is also talking about the year of Jubilee. He is also, like Jesus in Luke 4, quoting from the book of Isaiah. Different passage, Isaiah 49. And there in Isaiah 49, it's referencing... Jubilee, the year of God's favor. So this is what Paul says in Second Corinthians six two. Quote, quoting, he says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. That's reference to the year of Jubilee. Then Paul says, end quote, Paul says, Behold, now is the favorable. Time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The scripture has been fulfilled in Christ. Who here is on their own, who is bankrupt of righteousness, and who is bound and blind by sin? Who would raise their hand and say, That's me? Who Needs Jesus to save. Behold, it is the year of God's favor. It is the year of God's salvation. So the question is simply, how do you answer Him? How do you answer Christ? Marveling is not enough. It's not really an answer because it can go into one of two opposite directions unbelief, even attempted murder, as we see from the Nazarenes, marveling can turn to true faith and reception of Christ. Do you believe Him? Would you stand up? Back in that day, in the Nazarene synagogue, would you stand up amongst the crowd who are whispering and wondering aloud, is not this Joseph's son? Would you stand up and say, I believe you, Jesus. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Would you stand up amongst our current culture, our society, this crowd, and say, I believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? I turn from my sin and I put all of my faith in Jesus Christ. Now, some may think to themselves, I have already done that. I have already believed. And my answer is, won't you believe again? You might say, I have already turned. Won't you turn again? Some say, I have already come. Come again. That's what the Christian life is. Always believing, always turning, always coming to Jesus. This is the irresistible Christ. How can you resist coming? How can we resist believing again and receiving Him and welcoming Him as the Lord and Savior of our lives? Jesus is all that we need. How do you answer Him? Let's pray. Father, I I ask that You would put Your Word into every heart by that irresistible power of Your Holy Spirit so that whatever wall of pride, whatever hardness of unbelief that we have and our hearts would come down, would dissolve before Christ. And may we by faith welcome Him in. May everyone receive Him again by faith as Lord and Savior, the Son of the living God, the Messiah, the yes of all of God's promises who died there on the cross in obedience to You and love for sinners that we may be forgiven and freed and enter into that jubilee rest and freedom. Thank You for this time, the year of Your favor, the day of salvation. I pray, Father, Father, that many of our community who remain on the outside, who remain lost, bankrupt, bound by sin, blind to the beauty of Christ, I pray that they too would be brought in. May we be faithful messengers of the word that Jesus has said what he speaks. May we carry out this message to the lost. And may they hear with spiritual ears and be saved. In Jesus I pray, and for his sake, amen.